0: everybody, our journey through Stock Ake and Waterman has reached the second half of 1989. Where has the time gone, Matthew Demby?
1: Yeah, it's certainly flying by and we're heading into a very different phase of Saw's career. The brilliant hits are still coming thick and fast, but some cracks are also starting to form. But more on that soon enough.
0: Indeed, now after a stellar start to the year with five number one singles produced by Stock and Waterman, there wouldn't be another chart topper from them until December 1989, but quite a few songs came close, including two this episode. Now in terms of my personal favourites, two of the three songs we'll talk about this episode are among Saw's best work, according to me. We'll also look at a third record that came from a much-hyped new act from the Hit Factory that I wasn't so sure about yet. Matt, apparently, has a lot to say about that one.
1: Yes, I do. We're going from one extreme to the other with the songs we're talking about this episode. But the good news is there's twice as much good as bad. And our first song today is more of that hit factory brilliance. It's Kylie Minogue with the second single from her Enjoy Yourself album, Wouldn't Change A Thing. Let's have a listen. That was Kylie Minogue with "Wouldn't Change A Thing, which charted in August of 1989. It was another big hit for her, reaching two in the UK, four in Denmark, five in Belgium and six in Australia and Finland
0: what was going on in finland episode after episode that country (laughs) seems to be popping up there must have been some hardcore sore fans up there
1: i want to move there
0: now for kylie it must have been frustrating to place at number two so many times what's worse is that wouldn't change a thing was blocked from the uk number one position for two weeks by swing the mood by jive bunny and the master mixers Still, it sold really well and ended the year as Britain's 21st highest selling single for 1989, which was actually better than Chart Topper, Sealed With A Kiss. Now, as you mentioned, Matt, in Australia, Wouldn't Change A Thing reached a respectable number 6, but it only stayed on the top 50 for 8 weeks, which was Kylie's quickest exit from the ARIA chart
1: yet. Right, now over in the US, the song was the first single from Enjoy Yourself. Unfortunately, it failed to crack the Billboard Top 100, although it did make 83 on the Cashbox chart, with this disappointing result effectively ending all momentum for Kylie's career in America. Well, at least during her Saw era. But I really enjoy this song, it's a nice gentle piece of Kylie pop, with a great melody and some wonderful moments of subtly swelling excitement. And there was also increasing signs of maturity here, with her sound moving steadily away from the bubblegum of her debut album.
0: For me, this is Kylie's best sore single of the eighties, and it has some stiff competition. From that drum loop and those ah ah ahs at the start all the way through, it's a bit cooler than anything she'd released before. I really like the lyrics, how all her friends are telling her she's dating a loser, but she's fine, thank you all the same. The pre chorus, the bit is my heart ruling my mind, is one of my favourites and the chorus delivers. Vocally, other than a couple of harsh vowel sounds, it's also a good showcase for Kylie is maturing singing so top marks all round and shockingly matt i'm going to surprise you with this one i actually went out and bought the 12 inch single of this
1: can you believe it oh my god what's going on are we in an alternative reality or something
0: and it didn't even have the seven inch version on it was i high no (laughs) actually the your thang mix is one of my favorite saw extended versions of all time and here's why
1: Yeah, those cool drums are given much more room at the start of that mix. And this mix really keeps the integrity of the song, but gives its great moments a lot more space to breathe. And of course there's the Espana mix which moves things along a lot further with that big, big beat and those samples. Carly was definitely being incrementally moved on in a much more grown up direction. So let's have a listen to that mix.
0: So that Australian single that I bought came with a different cover from the UK release and once again I think Mushroom got it 100% right. I'm not sure what anyone was thinking with that transparent green top Kylie was wearing on the UK cover. And the less said about the yellow washing up glove seen on the back, the better.
1: (laughs) Yeah, the UK single release is a pass for me. I've got to assume that time constraints meant PWL had to go with an older pick for this sleeve, rather than the shots that were done during the filming of the video or from around that time. The Australian single sleeve was much better, that action shot with Kylie in the bead dress. She's also benefiting from her UK restyle in that shoot with the better hair and makeup. Now, as we know, the video for this song was the very first one she'd done in the UK, and really, things would never be the same after this point. Following the disappointment of the hand-on-your-heart clip, this is exactly what she needed. New ideas, new, cooler visuals, and lots of new blood in her creative team. This video was directed by Peter Cornish, who had plenty of experience with pop videos. He'd done them for Rick Astley, Alison Moyet, Kim Wilde, and Bath Dire Straits. (laughs)
0: And it was shot partly in David Howell's backyard.
1: (laughs) That's so cool. That's what I call being economical with locations. Now, as (laughs) well as looking a lot more polished and international, this definitely feels like the official beginning of a new era for Kylie. The promo campaign for this single notably featured more skin, cut-off jeans, bra tops, and bared midriffs, A lot of the interviews she was doing to promote this single were dominated by questions about her then upcoming movie, The Delinquents, which the UK press was insisting would be full of explicit sex and nudity. (gasps) All of this led Terry Wogan to ask Kylie if she was suddenly growing up and perhaps too fast. To which Kylie replied, my fans are growing up too. Too right, Kylie. What did you think of all this change, Gavin?
0: Oh, I was fine with it. I loved the music video for Wouldn't Change a Thing so much. It was fairly simple, but it made such a difference having Kylie with dancers as opposed to just aimlessly wandering around a set. I loved the concept of what looked like a dress rehearsal with Kylie and her dancers in casual wear, and then the proper performance with the formal wear. Decades ahead of Love on Top by Beyonce, and no prizes for guessing, I learnt the routine. Now, as we heard in bonus episode, The Look of a Bright Young Britain, the Wouldn't Change a Thing video was the first project that PWL stylist Sharon McPhillamy worked on after she expressed her opinion that a previous PWL release and artist could have been styled better. Wonder who that could have been. Let's hear from Shazza about being thrown in at the deep end, having to style a video for one of PWL's top
2: artists. The video had already been commissioned with nothing to do with me. So I was just given the script and told that Kylie was flying in. We must have been doing it on a Friday or something. and She was flying in on, it was ridiculous, like the Wednesday or something. So I went to her hotel and and said right what have you got in your suitcase because i wasn't a stylist i had no contacts i didn't know any prs i didn't know any anyone so i opened the suitcase and she had in it the pearl bra and skirt that was made by an australian designer and she had the denim shorts And I can't remember if I supplied the black shirt or she did, but I supplied the bra, the Patricia Field bra that's underneath. Then we had dancers and I was going to do with these boys now. So I just phoned the choreography company and I said, can you just tell them to wear their own kind of version of denim? So they all turned up with their own and I got the tuxes from like a wedding hire shop, and that was it. That was it. So actually I didn't do anything apart from kind of coordinate and hang things up. I hung things on hangers and iron shirts.
0: And had Kylie come with that beaded outfit with it in mind, I'll wear this, or was it just happened to be in a bag? I
2: don't think so. I don't think so. She had loads of stuff. And, you know, the little bra thing that she's got on at the end where she's playing with the kitten, that's hers as well. All made by, I think, by the same Australian designer, and I can't remember the name. She was a friend of hers, I think, and she made all these. Because Kylie is so small that you just couldn't find anything for her to wear because she's tiny.
0: So it's good she brought her own.
2: It was good that she brought her own because it took the pressure off me. Hmm.
0: So when you saw that beaded outfit did you go oh yeah let's try this I was
2: delighted <laughs> I was delighted <laughs> thank god and I had pearls that was the other thing so I added the pearls and I put the pearls on the neck and the black bra. well
0: there we go not bad for your first
2: effort it wasn't bad and I'm still very fond of it and I love that song too so yeah it was nice to have been part of it
0: There were two different single covers, as I'm sure you're aware. There's the UK single cover where she had like a green see-through shirt on. Do you recall? Oh,
2: yes, I recall. That was nothing to do with me. With the marigold. With the yellow glove. Yes, not me. I didn't do that.
0: So that might have been just like a pre-existing shot from an earlier shoot or something.
2: I have got a feeling it was done in London. I've got a feeling it was, but I it wasn't. It, it was before I was part of doing it, so I I don't remember. And what was the other single cover?
0: The Australian single cover, and I'm just going to share my screen and show you. Oh,
2: that's good. That's better. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I had ever seen that.
0: That often happened with Kylie's stuff, whereas Mushroom would decide to go with a slightly different cover. Well, in this case, a very different cover. And I wondered if that was ever picked up on at PWL. Um,
2: Oh, yes. I mean, it would have been, but it would have been um, discussed between David and Gary. David Howes and Gary Ashley were really good buddies. And so it would have been something that those two um, hashed out between them.
1: Loved hearing that from Shazza. It really sounded almost like guerrilla filmmaking with Kylie bringing her own outfits for the video and things being done on the fly. It's fascinating to hear how it all came together because the finished product was just so polished and behind the scenes they were often flying by the seat of their pants just to get this stuff done.
0: Yeah, that's possibly been one of the most interesting things to come out of this podcast and especially those, the look of a bright young Britain interviews. I always assumed it was all planned. It was all strategy. But often it was a scramble at the end to make it happen. Yeah, yeah. Now, while Kylie racked up another hit single with ease, the next Saw Act had a rather complicated road to the top five. Three piece boy band Big Fun comprised Mark Gillespie, Phil Kresick, and Jason John, aka Jason Herbert. There's quite some backstory to the group we'll get to shortly, but their first hit came courtesy of Stockhake and Waterman and a remake of Blame It on the Boogie. Charting in August 1989, Big Fun's cover of Blame It On The Boogie was the hit the boy band had been seeking for some time, both under the name Big Fun and in their previous incarnation as 7th Avenue. It reached number 4 in the UK and also did well in some major European territories, notably making number 5 in Spain, the first of three top 10 hits for Mark, Phil and Jason in that country. Australia, on the other hand, was less than convinced, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. The track only got to 37 here, which only added to the mounting evidence of a downward trend in Saw's chart fortunes in Australia. We'd already had disappointing local runs from big UK hits by Donna Summer and Sonia, so this wasn't much of a shock. But Big Fun had suffered a particularly rough entry into the Australian consciousness, and we'll get to that rather awkward story a bit later on. Also playing into this poor chart position might have been the towering status of the Jackson's version of this song, which had been a particularly massive hit here and remained a well-loved floor filler. Let's have a listen to that. Don't you blame
0: How good is that version? And it's worth keeping in mind that the Jacksons' take on Blame It On The Boogie was a hit here in late 1979, early 1980, much later than its 1978 top 10 success in the UK. It's also worth noting that the Jacksons weren't the first to record Blame It On The Boogie. Their version was also a remake. Co-written and originally recorded in 1977 by Mick Jackson, how confusing is that? Blame It on the Boogie was released by him in 1978, around the same time as the Jacksons' remake. Their manager had heard the song ahead of Mick's release, and they quickly recorded a rival version. Here's that original from Mick Jackson.
3: Every kind of disco and From that night I kissed I love goodbye Don't blame it on the sunshine Don't blame it on the moonlight Don't blame it on the good time. Blame it on the
1: Clearly, the UK had no problem making Blame it on the boogie a hit over and over again. Mick's version had reached number 15 around the same time the Jacksons got to number 8.
0: They were even side by side on the British chart at one point. I wonder what would have happened if only one version had been released. Maybe it would have been a chart topper. The big fun story also dates back to the late 70s in a way, doesn't it?
1: Yes, the first release by Seventh Avenue was back in 1979 when they dropped a track called Midnight in Manhattan. They were conceived by legendary gay scene DJ Ian Levine and they apparently did quite well on the PA circuit around the UK club scene. Over their lifetime, there was a shifting membership with a bunch of different guys fronting the act or singing on the records.
0: Yeah, they really were a bit like Menudo or a male Sugar Babes, weren't they, with an ever evolving lineup? After that initial release in 1979, 7th Avenue were revived in 1984 and there were a series of singles that did quite well on dance charts in the UK and the US, including a version of The Love I Lost and Ian Levine original The Right Combination, written with his songwriting and production partner Fiacra Trench. I hope I've said that right. Let's have a listen to those tracks, The Love I Lost and The Right Combination.
1: Right, the version of 7th Avenue that ultimately became big fun came into being with the addition of Phil Krezic, who spilled the beans in a notoriously frank post-career interview with UK publication Hate magazine. He said he answered an ad in Gay Times for, quote, a famous record producer who was wanting to meet a young guy to be his boy Friday. And that, he says, was Ian Levine. Apparently, Ian treated Phil very generously. He even furnished him with a gym membership and gave him a foot in the door with the music industry. When 7th Avenue was recast yet again, Phil was in and that's where he met Jason. Quote, there were two other boys in the band called Steve and Mark and we went on tour. We recorded a version of The Love I Lost, although it wasn't us singing. Steve left and we didn't like Mark and my boyfriend, also called Mark, had a great voice. He used to drive us on tour and we wanted him in the band. So we got rid of the other Mark by telling him we were disbanding
0: oh the story gets better it was at this point that the seventh avenue lineup comprising mark phil and jason decided to jump ship and move away from ian they landed a deal with jive records which is a
1: story in itself yes by this point things had started to move with the love i lost apparently quite big in japan it was while on tour there that the band first encountered pete waterman who voiced some interest in working with them then according to phil in that hate interview jason made a personal connection with someone linked to jive records and that proved quite helpful because the label was quote looking for a male Rama. interesting Jive signed the boys. The only problem was that Ian Levine didn't know anything about it, and there was a massive blow-up. In another interview for the book Europe Stars of 80s Dance Pop, Phil recalled, Ian wasn't thrilled with that news. All hell broke loose. He phoned us up and was screaming at us. It was quite a call. So that foundational relationship with Ian was now very much over. But, to quote Phil in that hate interview... I just used Ian, really.
0: Well, I can understand why Ian would be annoyed. I mean, gosh, that interview with Phil from Hate Mag is one of the best interviews of all time. It's so great when people just spill because they have no reason not to anymore. And he really went there. You know, Matt, you could probably just sit here and read the whole thing out. But you, listeners, can track it down online for yourselves. Also, we don't want to be sued.
1: Yeah, I really had to water that down a lot by quoting very, very judiciously. One thing the guys couldn't take with them to Jive was their name, because that belonged to Ian, although apparently they tried to do so. Of course they did. Yep, so being inner city fans, they decided on big fun. Let's listen to the first fruit of the band signing with Jive, which was aiming very much at club credibility with its then red hot producer and a very housey sound. <laughs>
0: that was Living For Your Love, the first single under the name Big Fun, and that was co-written and produced by house pioneer Marshall Jefferson. And that fact was unavoidable because Marshall had a very large credit on the front cover. In fact, the cover for Living For Your Love is a little odd. It's worth going online and looking it up. Jason's holding a chain in the air and Phil and Mark are kind of tying him up and hanging off him. It's nothing like the posed covers for their Saw singles. The song itself, Living For Your Love, is very clubby, not very pop at all, and the vocals are really low down in the mix.
1: Yeah, this is so different from what was to come. Very much less out-and-out pop. I quite like the backing track, though. The vocals are different, aren't they? You Mm. can hear all three guys being used quite distinctly. Phil and Jason's deep parts are quite prominent in places unfortunately this club focused approach didn't work for them and the song flopped on the charts despite the band getting a spot on the hitman and her tv show so it was on to pwl to work with phil harding and ian kerno
0: and the song phil and ian recorded with big fun was a much poppier affair a remake of carol king's i feel the earth move That was I Feel the Earth Move by Big Fun, and this single didn't end up getting released, but it came pretty close. In fact, it was all good to go with the various formats pressed and ready to send to retailers. But what happened next had nothing to do with Martika. (laughs)
1: Yeah, the single was pulled due to the direct intervention of Pete Waterman himself, who was very impressed by the hysterical reaction to the band on the Hitman Roadshow. This was the tour where Jason Donovan was causing carnage, with mass fainting spells in the audience, and teenage hormones were so primed for that experience that Big Fun were reaping the benefits. Waterman immediately saw dollar signs, and Big Fun were promptly upgraded to being a sore act. Waterman's A&R instincts were apparently now being guided by the fleeting teenage hysteria at a regional roadshow. In the wake of Brosmania, perhaps he thought he was buying into a sure thing. But were the band themselves any good? And would anyone else be into them besides that notoriously fickle and transient young audience who are into heartthrobs? Did these questions even enter anyone's head? And another question, what would pulling I Feel the Earth move mean for morale at PWL?
0: It was certainly a tricky situation. Let's hear from Phil and Ian now about discovering that the song they had worked on was getting shelved.
4: There was no real fight. I mean, uh, Ian and I accepted what happened. It was just one of those situations where, uh, you know, we'd made I Feel the Earth move. And, everyone, you know, the band were pleased, the label were pleased. Everybody was pleased, and it, and it had even gone to manufacturing.
5: It was released on cassette, wasn't it? The cassette was actually
1: there.
4: Yeah, and uh, possibly it started getting, getting some play in the clubs, I can't remember. And then suddenly, and Ian and I, can, well, I can remember, but being I'll jog Ian's memory. You know, we, we were told by Pete, at, just before we, do you remember this? Thing? We were walking into to the Mandy Smith-Bill Wyman wedding reception aha uh-huh. yes so something's really you know sticking my mind where you know uh we'd all gone along to that reception and just as we were walking in pete turned around and said oh we've decided to shelve a fill the earth and the boys are doing a track with them with with no real explanation
1: no there was no real you know open animosity or fallout it was, it was a bit like taking the rug from under us at the last minute without letting us know which was like
5: well hang on a minute what, what, what why why did so, so someone had made a decision somewhere
4: i don't think we uh, let it play on our minds at all because obviously the question none of us will ever be able to answer is would i feel the earth gone on and been a hit you know and that, and there was obviously feeling around the label and the project of let's do something safer
0: what were they like Were they fun to work
4: with yeah they they, they were good guys they were nice guys. They weren't they weren't at all difficult to work with. There wasn't anything particularly exceptional going on, but they were nice and deep
1: very decent and as as good as you could
4: lose gold. And the main guy that sang was okay. We just got on with him in the studio, and it was it was great. And one, you know, one of the business, as it were, short answers is that the promotion company that PWL used to use uh, was tied in with Zomba, and uh, you know, and they're the label that signed them. And between, dare I say, Tilly and Pete and the people over there that were very tight, said, "Look, you know, we've done all this promotion for you on, on all your own PWL label records. We want to put these boys in the studio, don't we?" <laughs> That's a, quite a potential scenario, I'd say, yeah. Know in the background and reading between the lines, you know.
0: Okay, so Phil and Ian seemed to take the decision in their stride, didn't they? But Phil Harding went a lot further in his book about this situation, suggesting he wasn't that okay with it.
1: Yeah, Phil went the whole nine yards in his book PWL from the factory floor, going into much more detail about how events played out at Mandy Smith's wedding. This is what he said. Pete Waterman came over to us and asked for a private word with Ian and me. He told us that the Big Fun record was being pulled because Jive Records had decided they wanted Saw to produce the band. Pete may have gone a little further and indicated that Mike Stock and Matt Aiken were not happy that we were about to have a big hit with an act that they felt they should have been offered first. Ian and I were gobsmacked. We realised that this, to us, was clear evidence that Saul were becoming paranoid about retaining their success and authority in the building as the A-team producers. That position was never in question to us as we were always happy to be the Saul B-team or understudies. And although Ian and I had accepted it at the time, it was clear to me that our future might not lie with PWL forever." So there we have it. The seeds of Phil and Ian's departure, which was a very sad day for fans and for PWL. And because of all things, big fun.
0: Because of all things. Okay, so Saw were tasked with putting a track together for Mark, Phil and Jason. And that's what they did. Updating Blame It on the Boogie for 1989.
1: Yeah, Mike had some really interesting things to say about this project in Mark Elliott's book, The Ministry of Pop. Not just about the band, but the a decisions that Pete was making at this point in time. Quote, if I'd have auditioned them, I definitely wouldn't have worked with them. They weren't great singers and by that stage there was virtually no discussion with Pete at all. He was out doing his own thing. Earlier on, there would have been more of a discussion with Pete trying to build things up for us. I don't remember any about Big Fun, but it was okay. I just wanted to keep working.
0: Yeah, we also spoke to Mike Stock about working with Big Fun, and he explains exactly who we can hear on the song. Here's Mike. Did all three guys sing, or is it Mark triple tracked?
3: Uh, Mark uh, was the lead vocalist, uh, as far as I was being told. The others joined in, but their voices are indistinct. I'm not sure now. Apart from Mark's vocal, which is loud and proud, and probably shouldn't be, the rest is backing vocals. Did that include Phil and Jason? Not really. But you see, I, I, I keep saying this every—you you know—some people are just right for the pop star moment. It's not really about you know having trained at the uh, some kind of uh, music academy for ten years, you know. But it is true that I don't like the sound of those vocals very much in the in the verses. Imagine if Donna Summer had sang it. That's what I always do when I listen to it. <laughs> the big question that I keep coming across is there's three people
0: lip-syncing in the video, but it does only sound like one voice, and that's obviously Mark. So the question is always, is it just Mark singing and the others are there to make up the numbers?
3: or? Well, but, but, but Gavin, don't, don't, look, they weren't on our label. Um, they had a manager they they came to us and for all I know persuaded Pete and David Howes that we must work with Big Fun <laughs> don't know why i get the band in front of me i'm told that marks the lead vocalist and that's the end of the story you know i you know i can't really change that but uh, waterman said on the documentary that if he was asked if he was asked again back at the time he would not have done big fun but i still think you know we we, we don't want to take it too seriously it's what it is it's just pop At the
0: time, I didn't really notice that in the music video for Blame It on the Boogie and the TV performances for it as well, that Phil and Jason are lip-syncing along to Mark's lead vocal. It's not like the video was on high rotation here in Australia, but once you realise that, it really is off-putting. One vocal sounds the same, three different people singing to it. Very odd. But that fact didn't seem to bother Big Fun's teen fans though, because after failing to find success as 7th Avenue, and when they recorded with Marshall Jefferson as Big Fun, everything finally fell into place for the trio. And they became one of Pop's big new groups. Teen magazines, kids TV, the Hitman Roadshow, they were everywhere in the UK. The latest part of the sound of a bright young Britain. Now Matt, you've talked before about how as Saw moved younger with their acts and sound, you didn't connect with them. And I know that's true in the case of Big Fun, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it definitely is. The charts were moving towards more adventurous and more quote-unquote credible dance music. And so was I. And on a very much more basic level, as a fan, Big Fun were absolutely not for me. In fact, they were the official breaking point. I'd been really bothered by the lurch towards the kiddie market with things like I'd Rather Jack, but Big Fun really crystallised for me everything that was going wrong at PWL in 1989. This band was pitched so incredibly young and the whole thing just seemed so cynical. Unlike Sonia, there wasn't a lot of raw talent on display here, and their appeal seemed entirely based on hooking in young girls who were really looking for a boyfriend alternative. And to be frank, you'd have to be pretty young and pretty green to think Big Fun were boyfriend material. Bronski Beat were big when I was 12, so Big Fun pitching at girls wasn't going to cut it for me at 17.
0: (laughs) It's funny you should mention Bronski Beat, because in that hate interview with Phil, he talks about the fact that Jimmy Somerville screamed at them, apparently that they should come out of the closet. So, uh, yeah, he knew you knew we all knew i didn't know (laughs) you didn't know how old were you at the time gavin i was 14 in 1989 i didn't even know about myself so how was i going to know about some boy band
1: yeah well look i'm going to say this was the moment i went from being a blanket saw fan to someone who just wanted good records from them and from this point on that generally meant kylie minogue as well as all those amazing standalone tracks that successfully returned to saw's club and r&b roots There would be a lot of amazing records to come, but each one had to prove itself to me on its own merits from now on in. After The Reynolds Girls and Big Fun, my unqualified endorsement of Saw was history.
0: I was still on the bandwagon in general. I didn't really have a problem with Big Fun as pop stars. If people were hoping to emulate Bros, that was fine by me, since Bros had an amazing run of singles and were genuine heartthrobs, if you liked your pop stars blonde and pretty, which I did. And a boy band was one thing PWL didn't have, so I could understand why Pete jumped at Big Fun in that sense. But obviously, there is a major difference between Matt Goss and the guys in Big Fun. I'll tell you exactly what my problem with Blame It on the Boogie was after we hear from Matt Aitken, and he's going to talk about the point that you make, Matt, about Saw's sound and artists getting younger. Here's Matt, the other Matt. What were your thoughts on that younger, poppier direction that you were going with in terms of the artists and, and therefore the sound?
5: I, I don't think there was an overall, uh, an overarching concept, not from my point of view, that it was just, OK, we've got this artist coming down from Liverpool called Sonia. Can you, can you write something for her? All right, then. Uh, we've got these guys coming in called Big Fun. What do they do? Well, they sing and they dance. OK, let's do a song. You know, it's, it, there wasn't, from my point of view anyway, there was no overall master plan. It just ended up that way.
0: And so you just wrote to to the artist as you always did, basically, yeah.
5: But did you notice
0: that it, you know, the artists were getting younger and the sound was getting younger, and there was obviously the the road show and, and things like that happening?
5: There was there was in my mind generally a sense of things not not being quite as they should at that at that point in time. In what sense? In what sense that Peter was spending an awful lot of time being Peter and not a lot of time being part of Stock Aitken and Waterman and. Uh, I didn't think the calibre of the artists that came in at that sort of time really had any star quality. Well, I guess a lot of them were unknowns who who were plucked from obscurity. Yeah, well, most pop stars are, but have they got the legs to go the the full course of the Grand National? You know, Mike and I were never in charge of who we worked with. This is what Pete was doing. And I think what I was trying to say, when Pete was spending a lot of time being Pete, he wasn't spending an awful lot of time being Pete as part of Stock Kim Waterman and trying to dig out, you know, the next Rick Astley or the next Carly and Jason. Okay, that was a... F- Carly and Jason was a the next Mel and Ken, perhaps. In in a nutshell, what are your memories of working with Big Fun? I, I, I'll tell you the truth. They were reasonable singers.
0: Could you see the appeal in them as a pop act?
5: Yeah, they were, they were three really good... They were good dancers, good movers, really up for it, you know, and uh, they also reminded me a little bit of... Um, sort of jan and dean and the surfing era for some reason now, I, I think it was the haircuts they all, they all had sort of blonde streaks and things didn't they physically you could see the appeal there's no question about that the question was could we make them sound as good as they looked i'm not absolutely sure we made that happen <laughs> they harmonized well but uh mark had a difficult voice to record was mark better not in falsetto i can't remember
0: I mean, I don't know if he ever did anything not in falsetto, because I always wondered
5: if it was like too high for him. He had a strange uh, register of his voice. It was almost wasn't castrato exactly, but it was very high for a for a male, and consequently, it was a little bit difficult to write for in terms of the other guys harmonizing with him. But I think we we surmounted all the hurdles. Um, Probably did not manage to sprint to the finishing line quite as well as we might have liked to do. Thank you,
0: Mr. Aitken. Okay, so I didn't have a problem with Big Fun per se, but why didn't I get into Blame It On The Boogie? And for me, it was all about the vocals. I was a huge fan of Blame It On The Boogie by The Jacksons. I remembered it very clearly from being five years old when it took off here in 1980. And when you have someone like Michael Jackson singing a song, you really have to do as good a job, if not better, if you are going to touch that song. So I feel like Big Fun was set up to fail on that front. And although Mark could obviously sing much better than Phil or Jason, he just wasn't strong enough for me.
1: Yeah, speaking of vocals, Big Fun got off to a terrible start here in Australia when they featured in a TV documentary here, which you can see on Daily Motion. It showed some of the guys flatly singing parts of the song and the final combined vocals being manipulated on a sampling keyboard. It did not go down well at all. Even Danny Minogue mentioned it when she gave the single A Bad Review in Smash Hits Australia.
0: The thing for me, and I guess this is a general comment, not so much about Blame It On The Boogie, was I never really understood why Mark sang in falsetto all the time. Was that where he felt natural singing? Was he pushed to do that? I mean, Jimmy Somerville... Let's mention him again, he can pull that kind of vocal off. But on Blame It On The Boogie, the vocal just doesn't pierce through in that same way. Production-wise, I think the track sounded good for 1989 and the mix was good, ironically enough, done by Phil Harding, who talks about being asked to do that in his book. But the only thing I really got out of this new version was the dance routine, a sign of things to come from PWL artists with those steps style dance-along-at-home moves. And yes, I did them in my living room.
1: No surprises there at all, Gavin. No surprises. Well, as far as I'm concerned, oh, for the good old days of Princess and Dead Mandetta Alive. But we do have many, many killer moments ahead of us, so don't worry, listeners, it's not going to be all whinging and griping from now on in. And I know, Gavin, you have a lot to say about Big Fun's following singles.
0: Yeah, not to spoil anything, but I did change my tune when it came to Big Fun once they got into original tracks, but we'll get to those soon enough. So from one of Saw's most derided artists, we move now to one of their most lauded collaborations, and the latest single from a singer who had no trouble in the studio.
1: Yes, from the ridiculous to the sublime, we now reach the next single from Donna Summer's Another Place and Time album, the third lifted in the UK, and the second in the US and Australia. Let's have a listen to Love's About to Change My Heart. Love's About to Change My Heart by Donna Summer was charted in August of 89. To me, this seems like a direct homage to her best work with Giorgio Moroder. That slow burn start, leading up to that ecstatic charge and that huge chorus with those powerhouse vocals.
0: Yeah, on an album filled with great tracks, this is a standout. And what I liked about it immediately was that it deviated from the formula while still sounding 100% like a Stock and Waterman song. It seemed like time had been taken to get the lyrics just right and there were those little musical touches to go with them, like that melodic motif after the line, I'm waiting for the doorbell to chime and it goes ding, 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 ding. And I like the way the vocals end and then there's an instrumental play out, a nice change from the repeat chorus to fade formula. It's dramatic and joyous, and you can just tell that Donna loves the song in the music video. I mean, unless she turned up for the shoot this time.
1: (laughs) yeah, it really is a tour de force. Most people agree this is one of the best tracks on the album, and vocally, Donna really gets to stretch her wings. The Saw formula gets put through the ringer on this, stretching into something a lot more unexpected and thrilling, which is always great. This would have definitely appealed strongly to her older, disco-age fans, but unfortunately many of them had probably aged out of buying a lot of singles by this point, and perhaps some of the younger kids who typically bought Saw Records in eighty nine might have found this a bit too off-script for them. It's also probably one for the clubs rather than conventional radio playlists. And that might be why it missed the UK Top 10, a placement that it really richly deserved, getting instead to number 20 there. It did better in the Netherlands where it got to 3 and 11 in Ireland. Over in the US it did well on the Dance Club Songs chart, thanks in part to a bunch of remixes where it reached number 3.
0: And the single version, which you heard at the start of this segment, was remixed from the album version by Phil Harding. And while I don't think it damaged the song in the same way that his I Don't Want to Get Hurt remix had, no, I'm not letting that go, it was always going to be impossible to improve on perfection. Speaking of, let's listen to a bit of that original version. so good. Now let's hear from Mike Stock about putting the track together. What about Love's About to Change My Heart? Did that take long to come together? It seems like the one that's the most of an homage to her previous work.
3: Yeah, it it ended up that way. I can tell you that after I'd finished singing with Donna on that one, I think the song, the tune came together quite quickly in the lyrics. But then I was busy finishing off it could have been any other of the songs, upstairs in the studio and downstairs in the basement, Matt was with George D'Angeli, a keyboard player we were using at the time. And it was they who finished off the backing track and the styling of it there, which it kind of feels a bit like a show number, like she could end her set with it live, you know, and uh, think that we kind of discussed and I let them get on with that. But if you can imagine on that album, Matt on his own did... Uh, I think he actually did the vocals on the only one with Donna. So it's a rare occasion where Matt had written that on his own and got her in to sing. And, of course, I, I was doing – probably I don't know, I'm going to guess that while they were finishing off that downstairs, I was finishing off This Time I Know It's For Real or something upstairs, and we were trying to get it all done quite quickly. Uh, so we split the labour, if you like, split the workload between the two studios.
1: Right, interesting. So Donna spoke effusively about this track when she chatted to Number One magazine back in 1989, naming it as one of her favorite tracks on the album. Quote, I think along with Breakaway, it's the best song on the album. I had a dream and when I woke up, I had the title. Love's about to change my heart in my head. And I thought, yeah, no matter where you are in life, when you fall in love with somebody, from that moment, you're just not the same. Everything that seemed mundane and colourless suddenly becomes beautiful. You notice the flowers in the sky because of your awareness level goes up. So I gave them the title and went off to a polo match. And then when I came back, they'd written the song.
0: It's so great to hear archive quotes from Donna but we are also thrilled to be able to bring you a brand new interview with someone else who was involved in the another place and time album by donna's side throughout the recording process and promotional campaign for the album was her husband and manager bruce sudano in fact and Donna had been working together since the late 70s and were married in 1980. Let's revisit with Bruce now the path Donna's career took throughout the 80s up to the point where she started working with Stock and Waterman. In 1980 there was a new record deal for Donna going from Casablanca to Geffen. Brooklyn Dreams that you were part of kind of wound up that year as well. The two of you got married. Did it feel like a time of fresh starts?
6: I don't know if fresh start was the the feeling at the moment. It it kind of felt more like a transition. It was almost like we ended one phase of our lives and began a new one. Not only creatively, but also in terms of both being single people, you know, having single lives and (laughs) solitary dreams and and, uh, combining all of that and trying to figure out how that all went together. And so it was a period of transition and adjustment. Yes.
0: And on the music side of things, you know, the disco sucks movement that we hear about kind of sparked off in 1979 and disco was on the way out. Did you feel the impact of
6: that or was that kind of overblown? I don't know that we felt the impact of it. We certainly heard all the noise about it, how it affected our lives. Uh, Not really so much. First of all, Donna won uh, for Hot Stuff, the Grammy as the first woman rock and roll Grammy. So creatively, uh, she was already transitioning. We were never people or as artists who kind of reacted to the noise. Donna made the Wanderer album. I think Giorgio and Pete were certainly aware of what was going on musically. I'm sure Donna was as well. But creatively, uh, I don't think that they you know, were set on repeating themselves. And they were always about pushing the envelope. That's what Donna liked to do. She liked to push the envelope.
0: But what was the appeal of moving to Geffen from Casablanca?
6: Well, uh, we always had a great respect for David Geffen. He had a reputation as being somebody who respected artists at the time. You know, he was a, he was a big artist manager, uh, managing, you know, Crosby, Stills, and Nash and & Young, Jackson Brown, Joni Mitchell. So, at, at that particular moment, it just seemed to be an alignment where he was starting his own record label, and uh, Donna was free, and it, it, you know, it worked. The time at Geffen Records was always kind of, like, put in comparison to what was at Casablanca Records. And in all fairness to everybody involved in the situation, Donna was at the peak of her career with with the Bad Girls album, you know, and... and uh it, it was that apex moment, and when any artist has that a- apex moment, it's always hard to compete with that moment. So I, I think that yeah, the Wanderer record did really well, uh, but compared to what? If you compare it to what came before, maybe not. You know, because it w- it wasn't as big as it was big, but it wasn't as big as. So I, I think there was a, a, always a little bit uh, a sense of frustration there that. It didn't top what came before it.
0: Uh, Now, things got complicated on the next album. Maroda and Bellotti were taken off. Quincy Jones was brought in and, you know, one album was shelved, a new album was put out. How did you two feel about that whole situation?
6: Well, initially frustrated because um, the record that was being made, which was uh, ultimately called I'm a Rainbow, uh, was never fully finished. What they were responding to was was uh, basically a double album that was you know maybe eighty percent of the way there. I think in their little bit of fr- frustration and uh, efforts to to want to succeed bigger, they looked to Quincy. You know, at first Donna was a little bit frustrated, confused. You know, she's had a, a long successful relationship w- with Giorgio and Pete and and that whole situation. So. It was tough for her to to make that move as much as she respected the label's opinion and certainly respected Quincy and, and what he does. You know, there, there was a bit of apprehension and, and uh, you know, maybe some small frustration of, well, OK, Donna was also pregnant at that time and, and uh, she had just given birth to our daughter, Brooklyn, and was pregnant with our daughter, Amanda. Uh, so there, there was a, a whole lot of uh, uh, emotion going on. She
0: works hard for the money. Was next, which wasn't on Geffen,
6: which was on Mercury
0: because of that whole thing. Was all that kind of mucking around with record companies and, and the legal stuff. Was that a distraction? Did that get kind of trying?
6: The most of the trying time was uh, uh, the lawsuit itself getting free from Casablanca and, and making that transition to Geffen, that was a very trying time. The going of the, the back and forth, I think, uh, after that, it, it really wasn't. It was set in the contract. We we knew what had to happen. We knew that when we made this, she works hard for the money record, that it wasn't going to go to Geffen. Creatively, it didn't matter what the la- the label was uh on that side of it you know it didn't affect her creatively or or emotionally it, it the people at mercury were very excited at that time to have donna and to have that record and they brought it home you know again it was the situation that ultimately frustrated the geffen label people because they were like oh oh you know that could have been our record and and, and uh so, you know, there there was always a bit of frustration in the situation with with not not with David because at at some point David wasn't running the label anymore. There was Eddie Rosenblatt running the label and there were there were different people who were were, you know, and there, so there was a bit of frustration with Geffen Records uh, the, the the whole time, really.
0: Yeah, well, the next two albums Cats Without Claws and All Systems Go what do you remember about that time with, with Geffen?
6: It, it was always, um, you know, it just seemed like the frustration grew because uh, we would deliver a, the record and they wouldn't be uh, excited by it. They, they would seem, you know, a little bit, they, they wanted something else. They wanted something more They, you know, and, and uh, we weren't used to that. We were used to, you know, delivering a record and, and uh, people being excited and getting behind it and, and uh, finding a way to make it happen. You know, this this is what we were used to, certainly at Casablanca. It was uh, a very exciting time in Casablanca where everybody was engaged. And because there, there's always a stumbling block in front of you that you have to figure out a way around. So when we would deliver uh, the record to Geffen, they, were, they would just see whatever the problem was and just kind of surrendered to it. And and, uh, so, so it more and more became more frustrating and more frustrating in dealing with them.
1: It's great to hear a first-hand account of that phase of Donna's career by someone who was there and very much in amongst it all. A lot of fans have strong opinions about the Geffen years and the perceived stifling of Donna's career or the perceived neglect of her place in dance music. But Bruce is a lot more measured and conciliatory. He also had a lot to say about Donna's move to Saw, how that came about, and the outcome in the studio with tracks like Love's About to Change My Heart. Let's hear Bruce talk about that experience and then that track in particular.
6: It came about this way. It was time for the next record. And Doc and, um, Akin and Waterman were, were having success with Rick Astley. You know, I'm listening to the Rick Astley record and, I, and I'm just in my mind saying this would be a perfect fit for Donna right now. It's a production team that she can work with. They work quick the way that she likes to work. It's uh, a, a contemporary dance sound for the moment. So uh, I suggested it to Donna and, and uh, she liked it, too. She liked the idea. Uh, I think I ran into Pete Waterman at, at a pool, you know, at a hotel somewhere. And I was like, would you be interested in working with Donna? He was like, absolutely. I, I went to Geffen Records with the idea. They were kind of OK with it. You know, Geffen Records had most of his success in, in the rock and roll Kind of world, so they were always a little bit uncomfortable w- with some things. But so they said, "Okay, well, if that's what you want to do, you know, let let's try it." So we had a great time. You know, Donna and I we took the, our three kids. We we moved to London. We got a house in St John's Wood. Uh, we had a great time making the record. Uh, it was easy. It was fun. It went fast. Donna liked to work fast. She didn't like to belabor things. And so then we have the record. I go to Geffen Records and uh, we deliver the record and they're like, uh, we don't like it. We don't hear it. We don't um, we don't think there's a hit here. And I'm like, really? And that's when I went to David, who, who, as I said, wasn't really on the day to day label. And I said, look, we've done all this stuff together. This situation just never seems to mesh right. And he said to me, you're exactly right. You can take everything, you're free to go, which was the most gracious thing that anybody could ever do. For all comments that David can be a very controversial figure, but he's also a ge- very generous man, and uh, he's he's reasonable, he's rational, and, and yes, if he has an opinion, he's going to let you know. But in that situation for us, he was very kind and very gracious and said, go.
0: So how did you find working with Pete Waterman? Then I guess David Howells on the business side of things. How did you find those two?
6: It was fine, you know, fun, rational, you know, creative, intelligent, funny. Pete's great. David's great. great. David's straight ahead. Say what you mean. Do what you say. Kind of people who want to win, who want to succeed. So it was a really fun experience. It was a nice experience. It was a great memory. We all have great memories. My kids still have great memories of that time. Were you in the studio much
0: when they were doing stuff? Yeah. How did the two of you find working with Mike and Matt?
6: It was really fine. You know, I think uh, um, th- there wasn't any contention because everybody liked what was being done. Matt and Mike worked fast. don't liked to work fast. Uh, they were respectful of her. They got great sound on her voice. She was free to try things she was kind of like in and out. See you, boys, I'm going shopping. Good job. Good day. Later. Which is how they like it. Yeah, it was it was easy for everybody. Very much how she kind of worked with Giorgio and Pete. She would do her part. She would say what she had to say in terms of maybe this song could use this kind of thing or that kind of thing or and then would trust them to do what they do. And if she didn't like something, she obviously would say it and and they'd adjust. But there wasn't a whole lot of that.
0: Okay, Love's About to Change My Heart, classic Donna Summer, slow start, and then explodes, and the beat comes in, and, and they get, like, did it really feel like, yeah, this is a Donna Summer song?
6: Yes, it, it's, uh, you know, we, we love that track, love Donna's vocal on, on that track, uh, love the song itself, it's a quality song, it's a great vocal, it's a great track. Uh, It has all the right elements. Uh, You you get the ballad beginning with with Donna and and the emotion, and, and it's a full showcase on every level.
0: It was extensively remixed for the single version, lots of remixes. CNC Music Factory did mixes, PWL did mixes. What was the process of a- approving remixes and things like that? How involved were you and Donna in the remix side of things?
6: Well, I, I think it uh, involved as much as a remix would get done, it would get sent to Donna, she would listen to it, she would approve it or not. Uh, most cases, they were approved. Sometimes she had suggestions. But um, it was easy. It wasn't heavy uh, involved and a lot of back and forth. You know, usually the remixers were chosen because of uh, there were uh, different clubs that played different styles of remixes. So the labels will know who who the right guys are for those kind of clubs. So each of those remixes are done for a specific reason, for a specific Type club, you know Donna and I at that point in our lives weren't going to a lot of clubs, so so you know we heard the remix. If they didn't bastardize uh, the song too badly, uh, you know we would approve it because they knew what they were doing and what they were doing it for.
0: That brings us to Atlantic Records. I assume they got C and C Music
6: Factory involved. So did you get the sense that they knew what to do with it? Absolutely. You know, obviously, we have a long history. Donna basically started that whole genre of of remixes and and you know extended versions and, and and all that. Initially, we love to love you, baby, which was a sixteen minute, you know, one side of an album. So so we have a lot of experience in this world and, and knew a lot of the players and 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 know how that works. So so uh, you know, certainly Atlantic uh, had a great team in place and they knew what to do.
0: With Love's About to Change My Heart, would is it safe to say that the album version is the superior version? Like all there were millions of remixes, single mixes and club mixes and whatever. But
6: for me personally, you can't beat that album mix. Would, where do you stand? I, I would agree with you. I, I I mean, I always think that the album version is generally the superior version of of any song <laughs> when you have a hit record it's a combination of elements it's a great song you know it's it's a great recording and it's also a great mix that captures the spirit the essence that that really puts it over the top and mixing is a, a very uh, subtle science a, a smallest little move in a mix can make the difference
0: I spoke to Pete Hammond, who, who mixed the album, and he said it's it was one mm-hmm. of the only projects working with Still Cake and Waterman where he got notes from the artist, and they were incorporated into what became the final mix.
6: Yeah, Donna was, you know, Donna was a, an amazing artist. People may view her as she was, a, you know, the, the disco queen, the queen of disco. Some people say, oh, she's a great singer. But she was... Uh, A great artist. She was involved in every aspect of her career, from album cover to to the mix and uh, to the songwriting. So every aspect of her career, she was you know involved in, and and, uh, that's what made her so special. How
0: great to hear from Bruce about his and Donna's perspective on this project. There's more from Bruce in the bonus material, including his memories of the first two singles from the album that we've already covered on the show and those polo matches head to chartbeats.com.au saw as per usual where you can subscribe to listen to all the bonus material and in upcoming episodes we'll hear him talk about the next two singles from the album when love takes over you and breakaway
1: yeah that's right he's got a lot of great stuff to say about breakaway in particular so listeners you're going to love hearing that With Donna tragically no longer with us, we're really blessed to have Bruce on this podcast talking about Another Place and Time, which so many Saw fans hold really dear and regard as being the producer's very best work.
0: Okay, in our next episode, another music veteran came to Stalk and Waterman to give those teenagers a run for their money. And we'll also talk about the latest singles from some of those youngsters, including the follow-up to a number one hit that didn't do as well as was expected.
1: Yeah, we've got some big hits and one big hiccup. The first of a few is the hangover from some of the excesses of 1989 really start to kick in. It's going to be a great episode, and there's going to be a lot of fun to be had. So, see you then. In the meantime, if you want to chat, you can reach us on social media by searching for Chart Beats on Facebook, Chart Beats AU on Twitter and Instagram, and you can find me at Mr Matt Denby on Twitter.
0: That's it from us. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Bye. See you later,
3: everyone.